Well, good morning, Calvary, and uh, it's exciting to worship the Lord together and uh, also to think about uh, global ministries together. And um, I want to let you know, I'm sure you've already heard, but uh, you know, every year Calvary uh, does, uh, devotes an entire weekend uh, to uh, global impact events. And this year that's going to be November 6th through 7th. So that is Global Impact Weekend, November 6th through 7th. <clears throat> and Dr. Erwin Lutzer, who is Pastor Emeritus of Moody Bible Church, is going to be our guest speaker. So we're really excited to have uh, Dr. Lutzer with us. He's going to be speaking Saturday morning, Saturday evening, Sunday morning, and Sunday evening. Uh, you know, I guess if you're a guest speaker at uh, Calvary, we want to maximize, uh, you know, the time and definitely with, with someone like Dr. Lutzer. So I'm really excited about hearing uh, him in person. I've never had the opportunity to hear him in, in person, though I've been deeply impacted by uh, his preaching and writing. So mark that on your calendars, November 6th through 7th, Global Impact Weekend. I want to begin this morning by bringing to your mind uh, the story of someone you may have heard of. His name is Eric Liddell, and he was the son of Scottish missionaries to China and uh, spent a, a significant portion of his childhood there. And he then went uh, to a boarding school in England, and there he became an elite sprinter. Um, and uh, was just incredible, had incredible talent and uh, began to uh, demonstrate uh, elite prowess in that sport. But even though he was so talented, the headmaster of his school described him as someone who was, quote, entirely without vanity, just a humble, servant-hearted, and godly young man. And early in life, he had committed himself to giving Christ first place in everything, as Colossians 1 talks about. Eric correctly understood that his athletic talents were given to him by God and therefore were to be used for the glory of God. <clears throat> he famously said, I believe God made me for a purpose. And he also made me fast. When I run, I feel his pleasure. He understood that even his running, his athletics, was a manifestation of being created in the image of God, of being given talent, and it is to be used for the Lord. <clears throat> Eric's commitment to giving Christ first place in everything was tested, of course, if you know the story, at the 1924 Olympics in Paris because his best event, the 100-meter race, was scheduled for a Sunday. And Eric had a strong conviction against competing on the Lord's day, and so that conviction was tested. He withdrew from the race to the great shock of, of everyone, uh, giving up his best chance for a gold medal and, and competed in the 400 meters instead. Amazingly, he not only won gold in the 400 meters, he set a new record. So he was an Olympic champion, and after the Olympics, he continued to compete for a while, but increasingly, he felt the call of God to leave his fame and all of that behind and to go back to China as a missionary, following in his parents' footsteps. So he leaves behind fame, he leaves behind a, a cultural elite a life in Scotland and goes and serves in really humble roles on the mission field. Then 
World War II comes and the Japanese invaded China and Eric sent his pregnant wife and children back to Canada for their own safety, but stayed behind at uh, the mission station in order to care for the people there, the Chinese people there who were in abject poverty. He felt he could not abandon them in their greatest hour of need. Eventually, he was detained by the Japanese military and placed in a huge internment camp with several thousand other people. And though he was now imprisoned, he believed God had him there for a purpose. Even though he was separated from his family, just like God had a purpose for making him fast, God had a purpose for putting him in this internment camp. And so, he ministered day and night. He led Bible studies. He, uh, he led sporting uh, events for the children there. He even taught the children chemistry from a chemistry t- uh, a textbook that he hand wrote from memory uh, <clears throat> by hand. And he was well known for ministering day and night to both the believers and the unbelievers in the camp. In 1945, just months before the camp was liberated, Eric Liddell died just a few months short of liberation. His last conversation was about the importance of surrendering your life fully to God. In fact, an eyewitness says his very last word was surrender. He tried to say the word surrender twice and then laid his head back on the pillow and died. His was a life devoted fully to the glory of God, to the gospel, and to the good of others. I want to read to you some of the things that people who were with Eric Liddell in that internment camp said about him. One said that Eric was, quote, the finest Christian gentleman it has been my pleasure to meet. Another said, it is rare indeed that a person has the good fortune to meet a saint, but he came as close to it as anyone I have ever known. Another said, the entire camp, especially its youth, were stunned for days, so great was the vacuum that Eric's death had left. Eric followed Jesus so closely that the day after he died, a hard-hearted atheist, an unbeliever who lived in the camp said, quote, Jesus used to live in our camp, but he died yesterday. You know, I think that really encapsulates what it's supposed to be to be a Christian, a Christian. It means living in such a way that even unbelievers see Jesus in us and through us. You know, when I heard that quote as Katie and I were watching a documentary on Eric Liddell, I thought, wouldn't it be wonderful to be that closely identified with Jesus by the unbelieving world around us? The unbelievers who see how we live, would they describe us that way? Let's say you were to move out of your neighborhood. Would any of your neighbors say to one another, Jesus used to live in our neighborhood, but he moved out yesterday? That was the level of identification that Eric had with the Lord in the eyes even of unbelievers. Jesus used to live in our camp, but he died yesterday, says an atheist. Well, today we're continuing our series on 
the key biblical passages from which the elders have derived the mission statement, core values, and vision statement of our church. And this morning, we've arrived at the core value which Eric Liddell devoted his life to, which is global outreach. The elders have written this, because we cherish God's glory and esteem His commands, we rejoice to live all of life corporately and individually to proclaim the gospel and make disciples of all nations, tribes, and tongues. As a church, we are committed to raising up new generations of workers for God's harvest fields, faithfully praying for our global partners and their ministries, caring for them personally with encouragement and love, and supporting them financially with a significant portion of our giving. You know, I'm confident that this is a core value of Calvary Bible Church, and I think it clearly is a core value, and i just point you to three reasons I'm confident that's the case. Number one is leadership. Our elder board has four men on it who have served on the mission field, and all of the elders are theologically and personally committed to the Great Commission. Secondly, key roles on our staff are filled by people with long-term experience on the mission field. Pastor Jeff, our senior associate pastor, lived and ministered in Asia for most of his life. Ryan, our worship director, grew up on the mission field. And as you know, Katie and I spent the first 15 years of our ministry in missions. So this is something that is really near and dear to the hearts of the staff. Third is, and most importantly, is the commitment of our members, the commitment of our members. This commitment is reflected by how many have served and how many are active senders. In fact, approximately a quarter of all church giving is devoted to missions, and that doesn't even include what members are doing outside the church personally. As the most recent example, you, the congregation, gave over $100,000 to the ministries in Uganda to meet a, a crisis need. That's above and beyond what you were already doing. It's just the most recent example of the incredible heart that this congregation has for the nations. So this is a core value of the church, and in fact, it's one of the reasons why I accepted the call to come here instead of uh, a call in California because I was convinced of this emphasis and this core value of this church. It is something which is woven into the very DNA of the church, and for that I rejoice and I praise the Lord and pray that it will always be so. But here's the thing, we can't just sit back and kind of sit on our laurels and be satisfied with what God has done in the past. We must make sure this remains a core value of our church long into the future. In fact, we must make sure it remains a core value of the church until the Lord's return. It needs to always be a core value of us corporately and of each of us individually. So this morning, I want to take you to a passage of Scripture that's going to give us three reasons why global outreach must be a core value of every church and every believer. Three reasons why global outreach must be a core value of every church and every believer, both now, in the future, and until the Lord returns. 
My text for this morning is one of the greatest, in my opinion, one of the greatest missions texts in the entire Bible, but it may surprise you where it is found. It is not a New Testament passage, it's an Old Testament passage. In fact, it was written during the time of David and shows us that the nation of Israel understood that God had blessed them so that they could be a missionary nation. They could be a light to the Gentiles. God had placed them at the crossroads of the continents in order to be a light to all the world. Listen to the song that they would sing in those days, Psalm chapter 67. Psalm chapter 67. As the inscription says, it says this is for the choir director, right? So this is to be sung in congregational worship for the choir director with stringed instruments, a psalm, a song. Psalm chapter 67. Read along with me as I read this wonderful missions song. God, be gracious to us and bless us and cause his face to shine upon us that your way may be known on the earth, your salvation among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you will judge the peoples with uprightness and guide the nations on the earth. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. The earth has yielded its produce. God, our God, blesses us. God blesses us that all the ends of the earth may fear him. As we study this text, we're going to see three reasons why global outreach must always be a core value of Calvary Bible Church. Global outreach must be a core value, number one, so that God will bless us. Number two, so that God will be given the glory he deserves. And number three, so that the nations can experience the joy of salvation. Now, before we dig into our study of these three points in this beautiful psalm, I want to give you a little bit of the historical and grammatical context of the psalm itself. According to some ancient Jewish commentaries, this psalm was sung by the people of Israel when the whole nation had gathered to give thanks to God at the end of the harvest season. So the crops had been gathered in, and much like our Thanksgiving here in America, the nation of Israel gathered at the tabernacle to give thanks to God for the many blessings He had given them that year. I want you to try to picture what that had to have been like. Imagine hearing this song sung by a professional Levitical choir that we know had hundreds of voices, if not thousands. And then imagine the throngs as the whole nation of Israel is gathered and together they are singing this majestic hymn of praise. 
it had to be absolutely majestic. I don't know if you've ever heard a, a hundreds of voice choir, but it is a, a astounding experience. This would have been a choir of not just thousands, but tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands. A majestic time of worship. Another interesting thing about this psalm is its beautiful and theologically significant grammatical structure. It's a song, and it's quite beautiful in the original Hebrew. And it follows a literary structure that scholars call a chiasm. A chiasm was a literary technique that Hebrew writers used to emphasize the verse in the middle, or the stanza in the middle, in this case, verse number four. In fact, in the Hebrew text of Psalm 67, all of the verses are the same length except for verse four, which is twice as long as the other verses. So, as you know, songs have rhythm and meter. The various, you know, phrases or measures are the same except for verse four, which is twice as long. So, both the chiastic structure and the doubled length of verse 4 show that the author wants to emphasize the main idea of the psalm, which is, let the nations be glad and sing for joy. Now, notice that verses 1 and 2 and verses 6 and 7 are two ways of saying the exact same thing. Listen as I read verses 1 and 2 and verses 6 and 7, and you'll see how they correlate to one another. This is this structure called a chiasm. Verse 1 says, God, be gracious to us and bless us and cause His face to shine upon us that Your way may be known on the earth, Your salvation among all nations. Now, look how verse 6 and 7 mirrors that same idea. The earth has yielded its produce. God, our God, blesses us. God blesses us that all the ends of the earth may fear Him. So, verses 1 and 2 and verses 6 and 7 correspond. Likewise, verse 3 and verse 5 also correspond. In fact, they are identical. Verse 3 says, let the peoples praise you, O God, let all the peoples praise you. And then verse 5, let the peoples praise you, O God, let all the peoples praise you. So again, verses 1 and 2 correspond to verses 6 and 7, and verse 3 corresponds to verse 5, and this places the emphasis on verse 4, which stands alone right in the center and is longer, given more space than all the other lines. This is a purposeful structure, which, as I said, scholars call a chiasm. It's, it's like an arrow. The author is pointing towards a conclusion, and then he's giving an epilogue. This is a, an arrow which points towards that central idea, and they place the central idea in the center in verse 4. My outline today is going to be built upon this grammatical structure, and it consists of the three points I mentioned earlier. Point number one is going to be from verses 1 and 2 and the corresponding verses in 6 and 7. Point two will be from verse 3 and its corresponding verse in verse 5. 
And then point three is going to be from the focal point of the psalm, which is verse four. And these three points are going to answer the question, why should global outreach be a core value of every believer and every church? Why is it so important? And why is it something that we must do? Why should it be a core value? So the first point is this, global outreach must be a core value so that God will bless us. Global outreach must be a core value so that God will bless us. Let me read verses 1 and 2 and then verses 6 and 7 again. Listen carefully. God, be gracious to us and bless us and cause His face to shine upon us. Why? That your way may be known on the earth, your salvation among all nations. Verse 6. The earth has yielded its produce. God, our God, blesses us. Why? God blesses us that all the ends of the earth may fear Him. Did you catch the purpose clauses there? In verse 1, the people pray for God to be gracious to them and to bless them. And isn't that what you pray? Don't you pray? You know, God bless us, right? Bless my family, bless my church, bless my country, right? This is the prayer of the believer. God, be gracious to us. We, we don't deserve your blessings. This is something we can only ask on the basis of grace. God, be gracious to us and bless us. It's the prayer of every believer. It's perhaps the most common prayer of believers, We want God to be gracious to us, to bless us. We pray for God's blessing, and that's a good and very biblical prayer to pray for God's blessing. But how often it is that we forget the purpose of God's blessings. I want you to notice the very, very important word at the beginning of verse 2, the word that, right? God bless us that right? Or so that, or in order that your way may be known on the earth and your salvation among all nations. That word that at the beginning of verse 2 introduces what we call a purpose clause. Verse 2 explains the purpose of the prayer in verse 1. God be gracious to us and bless us so that the nations can know your salvation. In other words, the reason that people prayed for God to bless them was so that they could make God's way of salvation known to every people on the whole earth. God, bless us. Why Why are we asking for blessing? So that your salvation can be known in all the nations. See, the early nation of Israel in the time of David understood that they were to be a light to the Gentiles. Imagine an oil lamp, the lights of those days, right? They're basically saying, Lord, fill us with oil, not just to fill us with oil, right? Oil, you know, the you know, lamp oil in those days was a very valuable and expensive commodity. They're saying, you know, Lord, fill us, right, with oil, not for us, right, but fill us so that we can burn for your glory, 
so that we can shine the light of your glory so that others can see the light and be drawn to the light and know you, the only true and living God, and be saved. Beloved, we must realize that God blesses His people for a purpose. He blesses them so that they can preach the message of salvation to the whole world. The gospel is the purpose of the blessing. So, when you pray, Lord, bless my family. Lord, bless my job. Lord, bless this job interview. Lord, bless my business. Lord, bless this investment. The question I want to ask you is, why are you asking for blessing? Just so you can soak in and accumulate more or so that you can be a blessing? Do you have a selfish or a selfless motive for your prayers? Israel prayed for blessing so that they could be a blessing. I think there's a lesson for us here. If the purpose of blessing is global outreach, then God will not give us the blessing if we're not using it for the purpose for which he intends it. God will not bless us if we are not fulfilling the purpose of that blessing by making God's way known on the earth and his salvation among all nations. God will not bless our families unless we're teaching our children to proclaim the gospel. God will not bless our church unless we are proclaiming the gospel to the world. God will not bless our finances or our work or our businesses unless they are being used to support the proclamation of the gospel in the world. And God will not bless America unless our nation uses that blessing to proclaim the gospel to the ends of the earth. There is no doubt that America has been economically blessed. You know, I don't think that, uh, you know, we should take pride in that. I think we should be humbled by that. With all of her sins, right, all the sins of America, America has for the last century or so been the been probably in terms of numbers of people sent and and amount of resources invested in missions the greatest missionary sending nation in modern history before us england had that role before us other nations had that role and god in his providence accumulates believers in a place and then sends them out right there were the days of the New Testament in which the center of missionary sending was Antioch in what is now modern-day Syria, right? So Antioch, Syrian Antioch was the first great missionary sender, and over the years and the centuries, the Lord has used greatly different peoples in different places. Well, why has God blessed America? It's because there has been in the churches an emphasis on missions, but interestingly enough, that's waning, and we see the blessing waning with it, don't we? If we want God to bless us, we must understand that God blesses His people for a reason, so that they can proclaim the good news of salvation to all peoples. If we're not doing this individually as families, as a church, 
Why should God bless us? God will not bless a nation, a church, a family, or a person if they are using His blessings for selfish purposes or simply not using those blessings to do anything at all. If the purpose of blessings in our minds is just to play, why should God continue to give them? You know, Revelation says that God spits out the lukewarm church. Right? I mean, you know, the purpose of hot tea is to be hot tea, not lukewarm tea. The purpose of ice water on a hot day is to be ice water. Lukewarm beverages get spit out. So do lukewarm churches. Too often our thoughts and prayers stop too soon. We pray, God, bless us, right? Be gracious to us and bless us, but we forget the purpose of the blessing. And we neglect, even in our prayers, the purpose of the blessing. You think God doesn't know the difference between a selfish prayer and the prayer of an ambassador? the prayer of a witness, the prayer of someone who loves the nations. He knows. I want you to think about it. The psalmist prays for God's grace, blessing, and favor, but he's not asking this for selfish reasons. He's asking it for the sake of others, for the sake of God's glory, that he says that your way may be known, and for the sake of others' good and your salvation among all nations right? He prays for blessings so that God will be glorified. He says, Lord, I want your way to be known. And he prays for blessings so that others may be saved. He says, I want your salvation to be known among all nations. I think this is how we should pray. And just to kind of put it in, a, in an analogy in your mind, I think we should pray to be like mountains, not like reservoirs. Right? We should pray that God would send His blessing down upon us like rain on a mountaintop. Right? What happens when rain falls on a mountaintop? It never stays on the mountain. It falls on the mountain. And yes, does it water the mountain? Does it create those beautiful mountain flowers that I always go to see in Colorado every summer? Yes. The rain comes and, and it causes the mountains to flourish. But the rain, most of the rain flows off of the mountains and down into the valleys and down into the rivers, which go then thousands of miles and water the entire western United States in the case, for example, of the Colorado River. We need to pray that we're like a mountain peak, that God would shower His blessings upon us, that those blessings would then flow down and out through us to others. Global outreach must be a core value so that God will bless us. Secondly, global outreach must be a core value so that God will be given the glory He deserves. Global outreach must be a core value so that God will be given the glory He deserves. Look at verse 3 and the corresponding verse in verse 5. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Verse 5, let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. 
right? This is the prayer of the heart of the psalmist. He's longing for the glory of God, for God to be worshiped and exalted and praised. And remember what I said about the historical context of the psalm. When were they singing this? They're singing it when the whole nation is gathered at what is essentially their Thanksgiving feast. They're gathered there to celebrate God's blessings. And they're all there by the throngs and the tens of the thousands. And here they are singing, let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Four times the psalmist emphasizes his desire that all the peoples would praise God. Well, why does he emphasize that so much? Why does he mention his desire for all the peoples of the earth to worship God four times? It's because he realized something. He realized that even when thousands of the most talented professional Levitical musicians are leading in worship, trust me, you've never heard anything like it, as, as wonderful as our team is, I highly doubt they matched the hundreds, probably thousands at major feasts, the thousand-strong Levitical choir. Even when thousands of the most talented singers and orchestra and musicians were gathered to worship the Lord, and even when the whole nation of Israel in their hundreds of thousands are gathered and they are worshiping the Lord in this glorious anthem of praise, guess what? It is insufficient, and the psalmist realizes that. It's not enough. The psalmist realized that the glory of God demanded greater praise than even his entire nation combined could bring. Even the best of their combined praise could not accomplish the level of adoration that God rightly deserves. Therefore, he prays that all the nations of the earth would join in this great outpouring of praise. He understood that God is so majestic, so glorious, and so holy that it is only when people from every tribe, every tongue, and every nation have become worshipers of God who worship Him in spirit and in truth will God receive the glory that He deserves. He loves the Lord. He wants to see the Lord magnified, praised, and exalted, and that is the deep longing of every believing heart, that God, whom we love, will be exalted. And so the psalmist prays. He says, look, my whole nation, even the whole nation gathered to worship is not enough. Lord, may all the peoples praise you, all of them. Have you ever thought about how inadequate your praise is? to give God the glory he deserves. You know, one of the things that compels me to come to church, right? And you're like, well, you're the pastor. You have to be here. Well, there's times where, you know, where I, you know, that sense of responsibility is important. But, you know, in in younger years and in in times in which I wasn't in a, a formal role, I still long to be with the people of God. Why? Because Yes, of course, I could sing praise to God on my back deck or in the shower or whatever, right? I could go for a walk. I could praise the Lord. But there's this sense of inadequacy. It is not enough. My voice, not enough. So I want to come with you. I want to be with you so that together we can magnify the Lord. The psalmist 
realizes that even that's not enough. All the nations need to join us in praise. You know, even if you worshiped day and night without sleeping, which is impossible, of course, you could never give God the praise He deserves. Even if our entire church worshiped day and night, we could not give God the praise He deserves. Even if every single American got saved and the whole nation worshiped God in spirit and in truth, it still would not be enough. It won't be enough until a countless multitude from every tribe, tongue, and nation is gathered around the throne and praising God. So we need help, right? We go to the nations because we need help. Not because they need help, but because we need help. We need help to give God the glory He deserves. And so we go out to invite people to become true worshipers, those who worship in spirit and truth. We need multitudes from every tribe, tongue, and nation. We need the redeemed of South America, the redeemed of Europe, the redeemed of Asia, the redeemed of Africa to help us glorify the Lord. And for all you geography buffs, yes, we need also the continent of Australia and even whatever researchers are living in Antarctica right now. God cannot be given the glory He deserves until all the peoples of the world are worshiping Him. This is the driving motive of missions. The glories of God's grace will not be fully realized until, as the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3 says, all the families of the earth have been blessed through Jesus, the promised Messiah. In that Abrahamic covenant, when God tells Abraham, all the families of the earth will be blessed through you, he uses the term mishpaha. It's a term which is more specific than a nation, more specific than a clan or a tribe. It's down to every family line. Not every nuclear household, right? There's a more specific or narrow term for that in Hebrew. But mishpaha is saying every clan, every line, every family line of the earth will be blessed through Abraham. That's why we go and we know that there will be worshipers from every tribe, tongue, and nation. The Abrahamic covenant will be fulfilled as the families of the earth are blessed through Jesus, the Messiah. All the families of the earth need to be called to join us in the eternal choir of praise. The sad reality is that now, even as we speak, there are people in our community, people in our country, people in other countries that are not worshipers. In fact, they're mockers or worshipers of false gods or deniers of God. Humanity is robbing God of the glory He deserves. And humanity continues to rob him of the glory he deserves until the Abrahamic covenant is fulfilled, until people from every tribe, tongue, and language, and nation become true worshipers. This, by the way, is something that you see in church history is the fuel for missions, is a love for Christ. Very simple. A love for Christ, a desire that he be praised, not mocked, that he be worshiped, not ignored, right? That the true and living God be given glory, not false gods. This is the fuel for missions, a passion for the glory of God. I think the modern hymn writer had this idea in mind when he wrote, Oh, 
for a thousand tongues to sing my great Redeemer's praise, right? He's sitting there, he's riding, he's singing, and he's singing praise to God, and he's like, wait a minute, no, this one tongue, not enough. Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing my great Redeemer's praise. Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing the glories of my God and King. Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing the triumphs of His grace. This is the mission's heart. Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing. You remember what's written in Revelation chapters 4 and 5. The Lord shows John the future and what takes place in heaven. What's going to take place there? What is going to take place there? Revelation 5, 9. They sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God, and with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders and the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And every created thing which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them I heard saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. That's where everything is headed. To the combined worship of God. So why should some of you answer God's call to go? And why should all of you answer God's call to send? Because it is only when all the peoples praise God that our dear Savior will receive the praise He deserves. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Global outreach must be a core value so that God will be given the glory He deserves. Third and lastly, Global outreach must be a core value so that the nations will have the joy of salvation, so that the nations can experience the joy of salvation. Look at verse 4, right? And the whole psalm has been pointing towards this. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you will judge the peoples with uprightness and guide the nations on the earth. Global outreach must be a core value so that the nations can experience the joy of salvation, so that the nations can be glad. Beloved, verse 4 is not just the thoughts of the psalmist. It expresses the heart of God because it is inspired, right? This is an inspired text, and this expresses the heart of God. God is saying that He wants the nations to be glad and sing for joy. His loving, gracious, and sovereign desire is to give joy to the nations. It is His kind intention to bring countless 
multitudes from every tribe, tongue, and nation into his eternal kingdom where there will be no more tears or mourning or crying or pain. It is God's loving plan for believers to be united with Christ by faith so that we can share in the messianic inheritance which is promised to Jesus in Psalm 16, 11. Right? After, Psalm 16 talks about the resurrection of the Messiah. And in verse 11 it says, You will make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. It is the Lord's intent that multitudes be united with Christ by faith so that they can receive that inheritance of joy. It's a wonderful thought. God is loving and gracious, not willing that any should perish, but that all come to repentance. He wants to save people from every nation, tribe, and tongue. He loves them and desires their happiness, their joy, their gladness. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. If the joy of the nations is God's desire and we are His followers, then it must be our desire as well. So global outreach must be a core value so that the nations can experience the joy of salvation. Why is it a core value? Why must it remain a core value? So that God will bless us so that God will be given the glory He deserves and so that the nations can experience the joy of salvation. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. I want to invite the men to come as we come to the Lord's table. I want us to be reflecting upon our purpose and our calling. This is a time for you to wrestle with what your priorities are in life and to reorder those priorities according to what the Word of God has taught us this morning. So, men, come and serve the bread, and we're going to have a time of reflection as they serve us, men. Please come.